Welcome, welcome, welcome to Geek Vibes Live. It is April 29th, 2017. I'm your host, Caitlin Elam. Tonight we have Dane Alves. What is up, Geek Vibe Nation? Gerald Gibson. What up, what up? We have uh, Nick James, who will be joining us later. We also have Joel Jimenez. That's right, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Kanan Myracle. Hello, Geek Vibes Nation. How's everybody doing tonight? And finally, we have Juwan Carter. What's going on, Geek Vibes Nation? This is going to be a, a really, really, really great show today. I feel, Kaylin, uh, I could be wrong, but don't we have two special guests for our show tonight? I I do believe we do. I think that we might have the uh, creators and brilliant minds behind X-Men, the animated series from Fox. I don't know. I could be wrong. How you doing, Bob? (laughs) (laughs) No, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yep. Yep, and uh, I do believe we have them here tonight with us for the full two hours. So we get to pick their brains not only about the show that we have come to know and love, but also about uh, some stuff in our news. So that'll be a lot of fun. Um, Guys, Eric, Julia, it is such an honor to have you here to answer our geeky questions and to wax nostalgic with us um, about the show that has shaped so many childhoods. Welcome. Um, I well, think we have a couple so of questions. Oh, my goodness. That I'm was Julia there jumping in and, yeah. and interrupting. Sorry about oh. that. Yeah, hey, Kate, oh, one. Oh, thanks for having us. Fine. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm going to go ahead and pass it off to Dane, and uh, he's going to ask you all some in-depth, awesome questions. All right. Thank you so much, Caitlin. And uh, thank you guys so much again for being on our show. So we've got some questions for you. Uh, definitely want to start first. What can you guys tell us about your book, The Making of X-Men, the Animated Series, for the 25th anniversary, which makes me feel well, extremely old, by the way? <laughs> it's worse for us being the ones who are actually digging through the information, going, was that really 25 years ago? Yeah, Holy guys, crap. Guys, remember, we were, we were working adults 25 <laughs> years ago, so that puts yeah. us a little bit, a little bit older. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just kind of... My inspiration for it was the making of Star Trek. When I was a tiny child, uh, the Star Trek, the first, the first Star Trek series was what hooked me into geekdom. And there was a really cool book called The Making of Star Trek, and and it occurred to me that that there are an awful lot of people that love uh, X Men, the animated series, kind of in the same way. Uh, did, we didn't realize that we were making it, but you know, in the 20 years since, we've been talking to people and discovered there are a lot of people that really you know have a love for the series so oh heck we better make a we better let them know how what really happened <laughs> and how it all came to be and you know the stories that didn't get produced and the, you know how, how how everything got made so that's it's coming out in august and uh jacobs brown media is the name of the company that's uh publishing it they they've have three really huge Star Trek books out and Lost in Space books. So very much a popular culture uh, publisher out here in California. Our goal in life is to hit as many 
cons and fests as we can in the next couple of years uh, to sort of celebrate the book and what will be the 25th anniversary of of X-Men the Animated Series and uh, see if we can't get some books into the hands of folks who would enjoy that. Um, We had the dumb luck of having space over a garage when the show got started, and we realized we had all the storyboards, all the drafts of the scripts, all the inner office memos, the receipts from CVS Pharmacy when we had to go fax something because in 1992 we didn't have the Internet, you know, and it would take however long for someone to literally drive over in their car and drop off a disc a floppy disk, so we could then try and transfer it onto our computer. I mean, it's it's amazing how primitive it sounds in retrospect. But you know, those we had we had the materials, and the realization that unlike, say, the Great Batman, the animated series, or Star Trek, X Men, the animated series, just never ended up with the support of a major studio like Warner Brothers for Batman or Paramount for Star Trek. If, if we didn't do this ourselves, it wasn't going to get done. So. Eric took the point on this, and here we are. We're almost done. 550 pages later, uh, we'll have we'll have you guys a book. <laughs> sounds amazing, and I can't wait to have it for a coffee table book. It sounds like a lot of fun to be able to go back because I talked this with you guys. Like, you know, I was the perfect age. I'm 31 now, so when I was a kid, this was one of the most popular cartoons for me to watch, and how I kind of got into X Men. Um, what got you involved with the TV show to start off with? Well, going back again to sort of setting the table here for this, 1992, <laughs> and this is going to age some of us tremendously, there were there was such a thing as a Saturday morning cartoon block that if you were a kid, you would grab a bowl of cereal, you'd claim the family TV, and that was the time when you could watch a series, yep. of, an, a, a series of cartoons, say on ABC, CBS, NBC. Some places were getting, you know, uh, you had your, your syndicated shows, but... Fox Kids was less than a year and a half old, the whole syndicated creation of a new network. Fox was a baby network, and they were trying to fight with the big boys. And part of their decision was to sort of not – I don't mean edgy for the sake of edgy, but to approach material that, other, that, that ABC, NBC, and CBS weren't doing at that time. Yeah, to differentiate themselves and make themselves special because 95% of the kids were just – watching the three old networks that have been around for 50 years, and Fox was new, and why should you turn on to Fox instead? And so the lady that was the first head of that, Fox Kids, Margaret Lesh, really had a vision for for putting this kind of, the kind of show, you know, X-Men was her number one choice to get put on. And I know you guys aren't going to believe this, but it, you know, it's part of the story of the book. She had been trying for eight or nine years as an independent producer to get somebody to put an X to put a Marvel to put an X Men show on TV, and nobody do it because they all thought, oh no, this is stupid. Nobody will watch. It'll be some pimply eighteen-year-old <laughs> guys in their basements, and we don't we don't have enough of those. And uh, Marvel's never made a Marvel never made a successful movie. You know, some of the TV shows had been kind of hit and miss. Some have been kind of goofy and silly. And so when we we were both working in animation at the time, um, the word around Hollywood was, why would anybody want to do a Marvel show? I mean, think about that now. <laughs> Nine <laughs> yeah. movies later and and all the success of the animated show around the world. And it seems crazy, but... To, to, uh, we were working on other stuff, and 
Uh, and but so to answer your question, we I'd worked on Beetlejuice for a year for the Fox people, and for Sydney for Margaret cartoon. Lash. Yeah. Oh, thanks. And Margaret Lash and Sydney. I wanted. I wanted. They. It had run for a couple of years on ABC, and Fox needed extra stuff on their new network, and so they grabbed Beetlejuice and said, "Let's make it a little older, a little more intense and edgier." And I knew Sydney, the executive that was in charge, and so he hired me to do that. And then it had been a little while; it had been a few months. And finally, they got the financing. It took them a long time. As I said, people didn't believe in it. They got the financing to do the X-Men show, and that's that's how we got the opportunity. He, I, got, I got the call literally the night before the the big meeting with the, uh, the the people that produced it, like Haim Saban and Marvel, with you know Stan Lee was there. Everybody, thirty people were there, you know, to to to, to get X-Men off the ground. And I found out the night before that I was going to be in charge of the writing. You were going to be in charge of the meeting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow. and, and not the meeting, the oh, writing. Okay, okay, sorry. Uh, but uh, so, but there are all these people there that that had ideas about what the show was going to need to be, and it was going to be the big future of the Fox Network, and they were all committed to it. And I was supposed to be in charge of setting up the world and coming up with the first thirteen stories, and I'd barely read an X Men comic. I, I. Read other, I'd read other Marvel stuff, you know. I'd read around it, but if the night before you'd asked me who the main X Men were, I could have maybe named two of them. And so that was it. Was a bit of a lear- being tossed in the deep end and, and learning the books in a couple of weeks while we cranked the show up. And again, realizing in 1992, you there was no luxury of well, I'll just go online and see. You know, I'll, I'll download what there I can. There was no online. There was no online. Yeah. No. <laughs> There was no 24-hour comic book shop. There were no uh, uh, annuals in in the bookstores. It yes. was a different world back then. And Marvel Comics was in New York, and we were out here in Los Angeles. And as we're starting to get the show together, if friends, if geeky friends with collections didn't have certain books that I was curious about a character, uh, and I couldn't find out where to read about him, it would take Marvel a week to send me a Xerox copy from New York snail mail and that's that's that was how primitive it was figuring out the world of x-men when we you know when we were getting started but yeah it was the the opportunity you had to do with i'd worked on a couple things before with the people in charge and they just for whatever reason decided that i was the right tool for the job and so i I got really really lucky (laughs) well and you ran and you ran with it at all I, I wouldn't sell yourself short at all because I really enjoyed what you did. And, I mean, the writing that you gave towards these characters, if they weren't like that, like Gambit, uh, I don't think was a big character until you guys made him a big character on the show. And so maybe some of the uh, influences that you put in him, uh, maybe even if it wasn't even based off comics, is the reason why he was able to be fleshed out like that. Uh, besides, like, certain comic sources, that I'm sure that certain storylines you guys were uh, given – uh, what influences from movies and televisions outside of that did you guys bring in? Interesting when you when you phrase it that way. Just um, Eric mentioned that he kind of came into the world of geekdom through through a love of uh, the original Star Trek, and and I did too. But we were both growing up in different parts of the country. It wasn't until we were each of us out here in Los Angeles and met each other. It's kind of like, oh, you liked that too? Yeah, I did too. The idea of the core essence of something like Star Trek, where you have characters that 
you know, any story is conflict, but conflict is your character. You know, and so whatever your characters, you you can have monster of the week, you can have, you know, uh, any kind of thing like that. But it, you're really sort of tuning in to, to to see the characters you know and love. And I think that um, Eric and the other folks uh, setting up the show really put in the time and effort to to figure out which team members would be the right blend for the X-Men because the X-Men had been in various configurations since the beginning of the comic books. There were four books going at the time, and there had been uh, half a dozen different titles, and they were all going in different directions with different teams. So that was kind of liberating a little bit. We were able to pick and choose and decide what our team was going to be like and what our family of folks, what their relationships were more going to be like. And we didn't have to – there wasn't just one – say you know, just one canon that we had to follow and that made made it a little less scary for us you know the, those of us learning but you're, you're right as far as the as the characters go we uh you know we we you basically used there's a thing called marvel universe uh kind of a reference book like an encyclopedia and since i didn't have time to read all the old books what the other the main writers and I did was we looked for characters that we thought would be fun to explore, like figuring out Gambit and figuring out Storm or figuring out even figuring out Jubilee, whatever, and tried to come up with original stories that used bits and pieces. We mined the old the the, the reference books for for you know what the characters were like, who they related to, who their loves were, who their hates were, uh, and all that, and then tried to to do a fresh take on it. So except for uh, Days of Future Past, for the first two years, uh, we didn't really adapt a comic book. We just used little bits and pieces from the 25 years of X-Men history to create what we thought were fresh stories. Now, some of the stuff... You know, writers would come to us with stuff, and it seemed exciting to us. And we did, we'd find out later, say, scenes had been taken from a specific book or references to a specific villain that that we hadn't known before. But from our point of view, as we we're getting the show together, we were thinking of the stories as being as being original and fresh, and using using elements that respected the the the, the history of the books, but not adapting them. You know, uh, if, if it's a weird distinction, but but so it's like somebody didn't say here. You know, here's Uncanny X-Men '77. Let's do an adaptation of that. That that kind of moment never happened, except for uh, the one that Julia helped write, which is Days of Future Past. Amazing, and you know, I mean, it, you guys basically essentially were the same type of concept of, of writers for comic books. I mean, you were just given the mythos, uh, told to take a direction in a story. Uh, the only difference is you're working with animators instead of, like, you know, an illustrator. And, I mean, the right. same type of concept of the cinematographer with uh, director for the movie. So you were just giving the story fresh start and going forward. Um, how did you feel about the competition? Uh, well, not not really competition necessarily with Spider-Man, but there was when I was a kid, there was a big three based off comic books. And that was uh-huh. Spider-Man the Animated Series, X-Men the Animated Series, and Batman the Animated Series. How did you feel about being a part of that cartoon era? Much more edgier. Yeah. Well, go ahead. Um, just to sort of, uh, we mentioned the name Margaret Lash, and we mention her a lot because she's 
she's the reason this all happened. She had been an independent producer who had been trying for years to get someone to, to make a show about X-Men, and then she got tapped to be the president of Fox Kids. So she was the one now in charge of making decisions as what she was going to put on, on, the, on her network. And that she, she picked all three of them, and she, even, she had a, a strategy. Uh, Batman and X-Men were both supposed to start September 1992, <laughs> supposed to. And Spider-Man was supposed to follow once they got up, uh, up and running. And so luckily for Batman, they, she had been able to make a commitment with them like a year before. So when we started preparing X-Men um, early in 1992 for that fall, Batman had already we had we actually had people designers and producers that had done a bunch of, of already done a bunch of Batman storyboards and we had writers that had done Batman scripts because they were basically already all pre-production was done uh by then by February and we were just getting started so we were <laughs> we were playing some crazy catch up and it was kind of intimidating because we were seeing some samples of how beautiful uh, Batman was going to look, and we thought, oh, damn, you know, we've got a third of their time and half of their budget, and what are we going to do, you know, to because kids are going to see this Batman show, and half an hour later, they're going to see our show, and, you know, how are we going to make it competitive? And luckily, the guy in our the head designer, Will Minio, who basically made the show look and feel the way it, it was, uh, he understood all of this. He, in fact, he'd done a bunch of Batman boards, and he knew all the people over there, and he knew what they were doing with it. And so he said, "Look, we don't we don't have the money to make the animation that beautiful. We don't have this. We don't have that. Let's make it like the difference between a slick, uh, big, say, stadium band and a garage band. We're a garage band. We have to be fast and intense and nonstop and." And just bam, 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 bam. Because if people pause for a little while, they'll notice that we're not we, we we're not spending the money on the, <laughs> on the animation that they are. And the other thing was we were able to tell different stories. We have this incredibly wonderful group of this family of eight or ten people, all of whom can have relationships with each other. And so that's very different. Batman's really a loner, and so he tended to have these one-off stories that were maybe more about the villain that week than they were necessarily about Batman. And so the, 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 the people at Fox were smart about this. They said, let's make these distinctive shows, make Batman feel one thing, and this executive would refer to it, Batman is cool jazz, X-Men is a garage band. And so that was, that was kind of the way we went into it. Wow. And, and we always, and this one guy... I mean, you're going to have to talk to Sidney Iwander sometime. This, this one little guy was the hands-on person for Beetlejuice, Batman, X-Men, Spider-Man, The Tick, and like six other things all together. And he was he was the guy that we had to that we had to make the shows right for. Every line of every script went through him. Every image that came back, you know, they were his babies, you know, they were in his hands. And, um, but, but you're right there, the Batman, what we, we were conscious of what they'd accomplished 
and we think of them as like th- this incredible high water mark yes. of of animation creation, kind of the way Disney does when they really spe- spend the money on it. But um, at the same time, for whatever reason, um, and we we kind of lord it over the, our Batman friends because we <laughs> all know each other. Um, Batman never X Men always did about twenty five percent better. It was always it was always a much bigger hit and it was always more popular and always much more talked about. It became more of a you know the 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 thing that week or the part of the culture. And so whatever however much we envied uh, how beautiful they were, uh, I think they maybe envied how successful we were. It went back and forth. And it was a friendly rivalry. Um, not that we all sat around and drank coffee and then went to our separate offices, but you know it, it was. There was so much energy happening at, at that time, uh, specifically at Fox Kids Network, that it really, it really was kind of like being, okay, hey, gang, let's, let's put on a show, you know, and just the sort of frantic running. Once Eric got the call on the go-ahead to start doing the development for X-Men, the animated series, there was very little time to uh, do anything except just put your head down and, and, and get the work done. The, the luxury of time was never a part of it. Yeah, yeah, and the, the guy, the guy that Mark Edens, who was kind of the head writer on the show, he he had a hand in, must have had a hand in 35 of the 76 episodes over the time, and would have had more, but he got taken off to do other shows. Um, he and I are old friends from college. He and his brother Michael and I. So there's three of us that we we'd worked together for a dozen years, and had kind of had each other's backs and had a real shorthand going among us and we laid out that first season of stories uh in about a week and that was looking back it's really scary because the we didn't know i mean we were depending on people around us like the people on the art side and our advisors from marvel to keep us on the right track as far as Wolverine would do this, or this is this is part of the X Men world. This is not part of the X Men world. You're getting it from the wrong. You know, keeping our keeping us doing it right, uh, and we were constantly, constantly asking questions about that. But as far as the stories went, they just kind of stared at us and said, "I know this is fast, but we need it now." You know, we're already behind. And if you guys noticed, X Men didn't really premiere until the following January. We were four months late. Oh, that's right. You were talking about the September. It was supposed to be a joint. Yeah, it was supposed to be Batman and X-Men at the same time. And because of production problems, because it was a new show, because we'd only had a couple weeks of prep instead of, you know, the almost a year that Batman had, it wasn't ready in September. Uh, it, the, the animation didn't look good enough. They had to redo it. There were teething problems. And so... Margaret Lash was smart enough. She said, aha, we'll pretend we wanted to have it come out in January the whole time. And we had a sneak preview on Halloween in 92 of one of the shows that was ready, of the pilot show, uh, Night of the Sentinels. But we didn't really start the series as a true premiere until until January, and that was because of our production problems. Again, all credit to Margaret Lesh, because she had pre-sold this to all the various local networks that, no, no, this one-two punch is going to happen in September. It's going to be so exciting. And then with Batman and X-Men, and then the X-Men just wasn't going to go. And she had to go back and then sell them on what was then a revolutionary idea that will everyone everything rolls out in September. Every TV 
premiere season starts in September. But we're going to have this hot new show that's going to start in January when everything else is in reruns, and all the kids are going to watch it because everything else, it, it, it'll be the freshest thing on the air. It hadn't been it done before. It definitely worked. And there, there you go. There you go. <laughs> we, we, we've met, we've met friends that are your age that said they saw the previews in, in October and November, and they were furious because they had to wait like seven or eight weeks for January to come around to be able to see new shows. Because uh, they were just so they were they were hooked and they wanted to see more, and so it, it and I guess word got around on, on the playgrounds and and the college campuses to okay let's get ready for this for January. Well, so yeah, it worked. We were we're through. I mean, it was, it was dumb luck. It cost them lots of money to to delay it, but it was the, a brilliant decision. Very smart, and just like kind of like showing the uh, the not the well basically the 3D models that looked exactly like the action figures during the credits. Definitely, probably got a lot of kids going to the toy stores to buy those uh, those X Men toys because I know I had like a million of them back in the day. I just love I love that quote that you said, uh, Eric. Uh, Batman was cool jazz, and X Men was a garage band. Like that is such a a brilliant way of saying that. Like if if, if Batman was Scorsese, you guys were more James Cameron. Like yeah. I, I just I, yeah. love the, yeah. I love the I love the fact that you guys had such a huge scope and a huge universe to play with. And it was so much fun. What, what were your favorite heroes and villains uh, to write for and, and that you, you uh, put forth on the uh, cartoon? Um, jumping in here, one of the things, and Eric, I want to get it straight here because I know I get the names mixed up, but in the creation of the team, uh, there were people that were going to be considered. Was, was Bishop, was, am I thinking Bishop or Cable, who was seriously considered, oh, but... Oh. Okay. But was held in abeyance because well, we could, yeah we could get I mean there were that was another weird thing that the the team that you ended up with wasn't the team that we started with on that first the first day when everybody from Marvel and Fox got together and decided on the team it, they kind of evolved I mean Beast and Jean Grey and Professor X were not main team members in that first meeting wow. and it just came, it just came through the writing of the stories we realized we love Beast. We can't tell the stories without Professor X. He's central. And somehow Jean Grey is an emotional connection to everybody. She's like the center for the show. So so that came from the writers trying to get stories written and realizing there's something missing here, and I think these characters can fill it. But back back to the, the people we liked, to, to, to the villains and, and heroes we liked to write for, uh, people – Half the people will say Wolverine because he's so popular and he's so he's so much fun to write for. I mean, he's the he's Clint Eastwood and every antihero you've ever uh, wanted to have fun with dialogue with, and so that and he has this hundred year life and he's he's emotional and he's tough and so that's all cool. But we found ourselves trying not to be tempted to write him too much because he's, he is so compelling a character. Um, I actually, uh, my favorite character of all, and this is, this is an odd one. I'm one out of a hundred, um, was professor Xavier. And I think it came to the fact that I had like a dozen writers that were trying to (laughs) get, we're trying to get this show done. And I was the one responsible and they were all different and they all had slightly different ideas what the show should be. And we were all trying to do it together as a team, but, I was the guy that, in the end, if it screwed up, I had to fix it. So I was kind of the daddy in in the room, and so I had a great sympathy for Xavier. Um, 
a lot of people like Beast best because that was, he's a, but Julie, go ahead. I was going to jump in on this one and say that, that Beast was my favorite character in terms of just who did you like to write for. Uh, it was just, uh, I'll give Eric credit for the accidental in the opening, in the, in the two-part pilot when, um, when it was to be time for a call to action, like, you know, he quotes poetry. He, yeah, and you, you had him quote a, a minor poet for a minor obstacle, you know, kind of line. And then suddenly that just that set the character. It's like this is the guy who would quote something perhaps vaguely obscure at the right moment, and it's like that's him. That's who this guy is. But then the romance of it, you know, of all the X-Men that were on the team, he was the most immediately other, the most immediately different, and um, unlike played in the films now, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't change his appearance. He, you saw him, you'd realize that he is some sort of mutant, and 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 he didn't he didn't shy away from that. He seemed at times the most comfortable, um, had the most fun developing the story that became the Beauty and the Beast episode that Stephanie Matheson wrote. Uh, just the idea, of what would happen if if uh, this this character who so has such a romantic soul, if if there was a shot at romance for him. And that's again, I just Beast was fun to write for. And I want to say, as a female, that the women characters on X Men, a person, they were they're the strongest. <laughs> to say it. Yes. They can fly. Storm, Jean Grey. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. They're the strongest. They can fly. And and yet, I, and 25 years later, I still look back at it. That was not. No one had that shoved in their face. It wasn't the attention wasn't drawn that way. It wasn't like Wolverine was less than because he couldn't fly. They, they were just treated as a group of equals in a way that is, was pretty refreshing, you know. So it, it, I like that. I liked that a lot, especially as a gal who was a writer back then on a boys' action adventure show. Um, so yeah, yeah, as you can imagine, most most of the uh, shows out here that get made, the action adventure shows, there's there's nine there's nine guys and a and a token gal on on in the corner somewhere, and that wasn't the case at all. I mean, heck, the, the the person in charge of making the show happen and making it as intense as it was was Margaret Lett was a was a woman. Mm-hmm. So we uh, uh, we never we never thought of distinguishing the genders other than we liked having romance, and that that was another weird thing. Most shows that we write out here, and Julie and I have worked on dozens of them over the last 30 years, most of them don't allow the characters to be adult, to 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 really have a romantic feeling or to have a feeling of re- regret or grief or just 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 real depth of of you know human emotion. It's just they just think, oh, that's going to turn off the uh, the kids. And we get that note over and over and over. You know, write younger, write goofier. And for once, we, we you know we get into X Men, and all the executives are just telling us, "No, man, make it more intense. That's great. Go for it. Run with it." And so you can imagine how much the writers loved hearing that. And it was a, and that was, you know, um, that was a crapshoot. There was no guarantee that the first thirteen were going to lead to anything. Uh, but they stuck to their guns, and we will be eternally grateful that they did. And that, to a person, we didn't write down to a young audience. We 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 just wrote. Up. We just wrote. We wrote like we'd write for an adult show, for any kind of show, in terms of 
who the characters were and how they'd react and respond to something. And, and you tell, I mean, you tell us. My memory is when I was little, I wanted, I was curious about older stuff that older brothers and friends uh, were into, uh, but I wasn't curious about stuff that was written younger than me. So I always, we try to tell the executives, if you write it older, you'll get the older kids and you'll get the younger kids because the younger kids are, won't get half of it, but they'll be curious and they'll aspire to it. Versus if you write it young, you're not going to draw in the older audience necessarily because they'll dismiss it as being childish. Uh, typically, that's what we've experienced anyway. And so X-Men was that, that happy, sweet spot where it's writing you know, real real feelings for real people who happen to be mutants and making it a cartoon show. It was like a half-hour drama that happened to be animated. Absolutely, and I mean, you guys are absolutely right. The thing that you had in common definitely, just like uh, with Batman, too, was that type of maturity factor in which nowadays I've been able to actually watch the whole X-Men um, when it came to Hulu along with uh, Batman for one period of time. It still it still grows with me as an adult, and I can still go back with the stories. So it's just it's amazing because I remember being a kid watching, you know, uh, Eek the Cat and, and everything on Fox Kids and t- The Tick and – and uh, Spider-Man, and just a great time to be a kid. Um, you, you know, you mentioned in my last question before I pass it to Joelle, um, after you guys answer, obviously, but um, <laughs> just seeing how Logan, uh, how you said Clint Eastwood, you know, was basically Logan, and seeing that movie come out, and all these movies come out, and Brian Singer directly saying that, you know, he took from your animated series more so than even the comic books, and I feel like, just in essence, that you guys are, are, are contributors up there with Chris Claremont and Stan Lee and Rob Liefeld and a lot of these comic figures as far as storyline. How do you feel seeing how X-Men got nowadays? i got to say, that's, that's incredibly um, flattering, and <laughs> it's, it's wonderful to hear you, know, uh, hear you say that. Thank you very much. Uh, we really no appreciate problem. that. Wow. Um, you know, it's even – okay – the boy, if you're reading a comic book and you're reading an X-Men comic book, I'm willing to bet, and you're a fan of the animated series, that the voice you hear in your head probably isn't Hugh Jackman's. Not that there's anything wrong with him, but it may, it's, I'm betting it's the voice of Cal Dodd, who was the voice of our Absolutely. Wolverine on X-Men. There, And it's probably all the voices of everybody else from that show. Those are the voices you hear in your head. But the... To me, the wonder of the the new the new Logan film was it wasn't just 17 years of Hugh Jackman's performance that we watched that brought it to this just incredibly poignant endpoint for that character, but 25 years worth of experience for those of us who were either working on the show or watching the show um, to bring we we brought that to it as well in, in going in to see the movie Logan, and I think that just made for a richer experience for everybody to have that uh, at different points in our own lives either as a younger person to watch the animated show and have you know, uh, have feelings for the characters and then as an as an adult to go into the theater and see this you know big budget film dealing with this, with those characters in this in this heartfelt way yeah, yeah. you know a, a fun thing about the voices um and, and talking recently with Bob Harris who was our um uh, he he's currently the editor in chief at DC he was the editor of the X-Men books when we did X-Men. Um, and so he was, he was the authority I would always call and write to and, and to make sure I was getting the world right. And he said the, one of the most amazing things for him 
um, was going into the first with the casting sessions for the actors. And he said, and here's the guy that's in charge of all the X-Men books. So he knows every single thing that was ever written or said about or around the X-Men. And he's listening to the actors and he's saying, this is amazing. This is surreal. I've read these stories for 25 years, but I never knew how they sounded. And so for someone like him, I wish I could have been there because we, they recorded in Toronto. We were in L.A., so we, so we, we missed out on that. But to be, to be Bob Harris and have all that knowledge of the X-Men and walk in and, watch, and listen to someone like Cal Dodd or like, or like Lenore Zahn, who was Rogue, suddenly give a voice to Rogue and be there, that must have been you know, incredibly intense. Uh, so that's, and that, that, I guess it happens to all, you know, screenwriters, you, you, you write something that's in your head for a year or two, and then an actor gives life to it and it becomes something completely, you know, something else entirely, a whole nother level. But uh, yeah, so that's, you know, we were aware, aware of that. Oh, and then as far as yeah, the, the Brian Singer thing, we've, we really, I appreciate that. I think it's, um, I don't know if it's just that they felt good about our storytelling. I think part of it is that when we had looked at the comics, telling stories in a comic book just feels different to us than telling it for TV or movies, for making it audiovisual and making it kind of a little more realistic and a little more linear. Uh, books are so graphic and there's so much internal, you know, there's so much, I, you know, a third or half of comic books tend to be thought bubbles about what's going in inside the characters. And we can't do that in TV. And so it took some, it took some work, some heavy lifting to get what was the essence of the comic books that was portrayed one way and making it audiovisual. And so I think when the movie people, when it was time to do the movies, for them, it was much easier to look and say, oh, these guys have figured out a way to make the X-Men play for 88 minutes, you know, in voices and, and images and move the way a movie's supposed to move. Um, that's, you know, let's, let's start with that rather than trying to imagine how to adapt the comic books because there was a real, there was a real difference in our heads, and you can talk to people like Len Wein that worked for us that had done so much in the comics and now have come and, and, and worked in television. He'll be the first one to tell you they're just different crafts. And I don't know that I could ever write a decent comic book. I mean, it would take me a while to learn the form, to really learn how to get the ideas across in static images and, 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 uh, and thought bubbles, which is different from what we do. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's, that's one of the reasons that, 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 uh, Brian Singer and the, and the, the, the writers for, I think all nine of the movies, uh, they, they went back to our, to, to our series as kind of the bedrock rather than going back to the books. Amazing, amazing story too. And I just love I must have been cool for you, you know, to see someone like uh, you saying that you like Star Trek. I'm sure you watch a little bit of uh, the Next Generation, being on the same uh -huh. time, and and to see the character that you guys put on screen for Professor X. I felt like the casting of because he's exactly what I wanted. Uh, Patrick Stewart 
was exactly uh-huh. modeled off the way that you guys portrayed your Professor X. So it's it's very strange. But uh, I'm going to pass it to Joel for the last uh, half of the questions. And um, thank you guys so much for talking to me. It's been great oh. and a big dream to talk to you guys. Oh, thank you so much. No problem. Okay. Hi, guys. Joel? Hello. Hey. Hello. So, hi. <laughs> so, um, I want to start by saying it's a, it's a huge honor because X-Men, the animated series, is like my first, the first time I've ever heard of the X-Men was through this cartoon. So, like, it, it's everything uh-huh. to me. I really love the X-Men and it's because of the show that I am. So, I want to start off, obviously, with these questions. So, let me start off. Even though you guys kind of touched on some of this already, I'm going to start off anyway. Um, sure. How confident how in the series were you when you started it? And did you think it was it would get as popular as it did? I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll let Eric jump in on that, and then I'll... <laughs> okay. Yeah, she can continue. Guys, to give you an idea, this is, this is weird. Uh, we were looking back on it when I was writing the book. Uh... All of the creative people, all the artists and writers and, and, and directors, all the people involved were only given a contract to do, thir- to do the first season, to do 13. With which, no options for anything not, else. Yeah, which means they, nobody involved in putting the money up had any sort of confidence uh-huh. that, that it would last more than one season. And so to our minds, at the time when we were making it, all we knew was – this is a cool show. We'll bust our ass. And Larry Houston, who is the the art the head art guy, the, who was who directed four of the five years of it. He was the director. He was the head storyboard guy. You know, he said that he sat the artists down and said, "Guys, there's Marvel has a terrible track record on TV. There's a reasonable chance we won't get to do more than 13 of these. So let's bust our ass and make this as wonderful as we can." And so while we were doing those first 13, there's like a four-month gap between, like, you write the script, and then it takes six weeks to storyboard and three months to animate and record. And So from the time you're, you think you've got your story straight until the time you see the finished episode is five or six months. And during that time, you've got all sorts of people wondering if it's going to be any good or not. And to be honest with you, that first season, there were a lot of people that didn't believe that the direction we were going was right. And they were pushing to make it younger and goofier and and different. And so that was – it was kind of a struggle. Uh, and when it finally succeeded and was like an immediate number one hit, which is pretty crazy and was, was very exciting – up until that point, we really, really didn't know even if it would be successful and be renewed for another season. And once that happened, it was cool, and everybody stopped trying to make us change it. But for that first year, nobody—I mean, there were there was a core group of us creative people that all believed that this was the right way to go. All the, you know, the Will Minio, Larry Houston, Sydney Iwaner, me, and a couple other people like this core group that were kind of holding it together and keeping it from changing. And once it was successful, it was cool. But that first year was very much, uh, you know, we had to defend ourselves a lot. Oh, I mean, I'm just happy that you did. And 
we got what we got because that's I think a problem with a lot of the animated shows now is that they're goofy and childish. And I know they're for kids, but they don't have to be as goofy, you know. Um, uh, I can I can uh, elaborate on that just a, a little bit further here on that first season and then the following success is that money was always an issue because uh, at that time uh, and shortly thereafter Marvel itself was having the Marvel company was having serious financial problems and so it was a there were monies coming in from four different uh, production entities to to make X Men and it was always a tighter budget. So second season rolls around, and it's time to um, get folks ba- gathered back together to start writing the next episodes. And uh, the, the person in charge of the most, most of the purse strings <laughs> was in, uh, insisted and got, um, rather than giving everybody a, a raise, because, yay, it's a hit, it's the number one show. Instead, the, um, the writers were all offered to write scripts for $500 less per script. And the reasoning he had was, it's a hit show. They'll be happy to write it for less. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. <laughs> We're getting nickeled and dimed because it's a hit show, and then we have – and you know what? It, he, 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 got was, it, he got it right. He got his money. He, he, he was right. All the writers <laughs> wanted to keep writing for the show, and so they, they sucked it up and took, and took the pay cut. <laughs> oh, maddening. That's, maddening, let me tell you. But, yeah, there you, welcome to Hollywood. <laughs> that's insane. That's crazy. I just I would never expect it. I don't think. Well, there you go. Um, <laughs> yeah, you surprised me. Um, all right. So the second question. Um, I know you guys kind of touched on it earlier with Dane. Um, but if you can go into a little more detail, who who decided on the main roster for the show exactly? Like, how, and probably put into better perspective, like what specifically for these characters? What made you choose these specific characters? Well, that was it. Was really a, a, a top of the uh, top important thing for everybody. Uh, picture yourself a big conference table with about twenty five people sitting around it, and that's how we started in February '92. We all got together, and there were say five people from Marvel, five people from Fox, five people from Graz Entertainment, which is the actual pre production and design house, uh, and and various other folks and me and and everybody was excited about the, doing this new show and of course everybody had had ideas about who might be best and so interestingly uh we kind of I mean I didn't really know the characters that well that day and so I was kind of deferring to the people that that knew the characters better um and they picked as Julia mentioned, when they, the original list that they came down with was, I think Cable Cable was involved, uh, Colossus was a maybe, um, and as I say, Beast and Professor X and Gene were put in the third list. Like, okay, we may see these people around, but they're not going to be the focus. What what the people at the meeting were looking for. Uh, was uh, Gambit was there because he was he was somebody that they were pushing uh, that the books were pushing that year, so that was Marvel's interest. Obviously, Wolverine and Scott and, uh, needed to be there. They're kind of central. And Rogue, I think everybody got Rogue, got Rogue right away. Rogue and Storm, I think Storm because she's so it's such an animatable powers. I mean, it's it's 
she, you know, she just fits animation better than a lot of other characters. But once we started getting six or seven of the folks in there, uh, for the writers, our interest was only we, you know, we didn't have a didn't have an agenda like you know we got to have Colossus or you know because he's my favorite. It was which you know and on something else we might have, but we were just looking for a balance so that we didn't have. Uh, you know, three gruff tough guys because you know, like I think Thunderbird was was considered for a short time, and why I think one of the reasons we didn't use Cable is because he, you know, if you're writing scenes, he's just going to sit there and try to out. He and Wolverine are going to try to out gruff each other, and so <laughs> better to have you know gentle beast and mysterious. Uh, 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 Cajun, who's my oh, gambit, oh, gambit. Uh, and and the very different women, and all have all these people, because the hardest part when you're a writer is you've got eight or ten characters in a story, who gets the line? If you've got six GI Joes and they're all the same, have the same character, then there's no reason to give the line to one person or another. But if you think about it, Beast would never say a line the same way as Wolverine and would never say the same way as Jubilee would never say the same way as Professor X they all have really distinctive characters so that's what the writers were looking for and that's one reason Beast and Professor moved up as we wrote the stories um, but everybody had their interest the, I'm sure the merchandising people were worried You know, we always get stuff like oh you know the, the women don't sell the women characters don't sell toys as much or who knows what's going through their minds. But, but, uh, so each person brought something different to the table and we came to the, the group of people pretty quickly. Oh, and by the way, just, I'm sure everybody knows this. We picked more simply to kill him off. <laughs> you want to expand on that a little bit? <laughs> yeah. Wow. I mean, that was, I'm not surprised. Yeah, I mean, I'm that not... was a whole, yeah, I mean that was a whole. I mean, he's like the guy in the red jersey in in, the, the, uh, in Star Trek. The guy you know goes down to the planet and gets killed before the first commercial. We wanted to make sure that someone got that someone died in the in the pilot, so that every, the audience would know that being an X Men had uh, had real consequences to it. Now I want to jump in here and just remind everybody: this is 1992. It's a brand new kids network. And yep. there is a thing called Broadcast Standards and Practices, which had a uh, – you're going to hear a lot of good things said about executives from us, which is not going to be typical of other shows. But Avery Coburn was the, the lady in charge of Fox Network's BS&P um, for kids' shows. And to her never-ending credit and to Margaret Lesh and to Sydney Iwaner, the idea of creating something in the series where it, we – where, the, where you proved that the stakes were real, that it mattered, that this wasn't just everything wasn't going to reset at the end of the episode and uh, everything was going to be okay, then it was, okay, we're going to need to um, kill somebody. Kill them <laughs> Kill. And then, so Eric, about how, how you came to the decision of which X-Men character was going to be oh, the sacrificial lamb. And I bet, the story. Yeah, and I bet you guys know, because I asked, I didn't know, and I asked Larry Houston, who knew the the uh, characters really well, X-Men characters. I said, well, is there somebody in the books that died helping the X-Men? In which case you could have then borrowed that and used Cause, that. Because we always wanted to use somebody from the X-Books if we could, We did versus 
bringing in somebody new. I mean, even if we're going to do something different with his character, we wanted to, that was kind of our first law, use people from the books whenever you can. And so Belair said, yeah, there's this character called Changeling, and Changeling uh, sacrifices himself for Professor X. He's only in about four of the books, and so let's have him, let's have Changeling be part of the X-Men, the first episode, and then we'll kill him off in episode two. And so in the, uh, when, in the actual script, it's written as Changeling. It's not written as Morph. Because that was um, the, the character that Marvel had the rights to. That was, you know, Changeling existed in the Marvel uh, X-Men universe at that time. Yeah, but, but then we got a phone call from the network lawyers saying, oh, DC has a Changeling character also. And uh-huh. I said, yeah, but 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 the Marvel one's older. I mean, what's the problem? He said, no, 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 they could sue us if we use a character named Changeling. It's not worth the bother. Use the character, but change his name. So I just came up with Morph as, as a different word for Changeling. Wow. And then, irony of ironies, uh, but but in, if you, okay, so we all know the show, Morph was Wolverine's best friend. Wolverine yes. really liked this guy, and we know that. You know, we, we, it's set up, it's established, this is an important, this is, more, this is Wolverine's best friend. And, <laughs> and now he's gone, and that, it, okay, lives have been altered forever. And then, Eric, you get a phone call toward the end of the first season saying, you know, um, this is this is this is further along. This oh. is, so so so, the first season was a huge success, and about eight. Ep- so so after three or four episodes, they said, okay, let's do a second season. And so we're starting to sit down to write uh, to come up with the next thirteen episodes, and we get a phone call saying, oh, we have a problem. And this, now we're about six seven episodes into the first season. So the we, second season? I'm sorry. What was no. It? no Six, six or seven episodes have have aired, have aired, have right, aired okay. over the first season, and we're about to start to write the second season. And the the network calls and says, "We have a problem. You guys killed off Morph. Guess who is the the younger the youngest kid's favorite character? They've done a <laughs> they've done a, a poll of X Men viewers. So who's your favorite character? Focus testing. Focus groups, and they and Morph won <laughs> by some wow. measure, and we said. And so he said, look, I know you worked a month to be able to get to kill off this guy because we, it's never been done before in kids' TV, but we'd really like to have him come back. And so we bit our lip, and we didn't want to do it, but we brought Morph back. And then we had a lot of fun with him when we brought him back. But the reason that he went past an episode and a half was because – the audience, the fans called in and said, "Morph's our favorite." We don't. We're sad that he's dead. So, in all honesty, guys, this may be the first and only time in TV history that a character in a superhero show died. He was supposed to stay dead. He was not supposed to come back. This was not supposed to happen. Um, but, but um, there you go. That's what was happening behind the scenes there, and that's why Morph came back. That is incredible. I mean, for years I've wanted to know. <laughs> Some of the stuff you just told me, and, and it's, oh. I'm, I'm geeking out really hard right now. I can't. I don't <laughs> okay. Well then, well then, you just there's stuff like this on my, every other page in the book, so you'll just have to have awesome. to prepare for that. Definitely <laughs> gonna have to get this book. <laughs> all right. So next question. Um. All right. So did you audition any other voice actors that didn't get the part, or did you already have a specific cast list in mind? 
you know, uh, that's um, that's a very interesting. Um, the, the voice talent on this was one of these. Um, we're in Los Angeles. Uh, voice talent, and here's here's a couple points. The voice talent is going to be recorded in Canada. Now, why is it going to be recorded in Canada? It's because the Canadian voice talent agreements with their talent. It's called a buyout. Those those performers get a get a fee, but they don't get a residual. Which is um, TV animation writers. There's no residual involved either. But American voice talent, if they record in the United States, they get a residual. So. so for 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 25 years, so yeah. it, it's, it, it was really a money it's a money question. Something like Batman, uh, they get there's thousands of wonderful actors in Los Angeles, and they're all just right here, a couple miles away. And and but the problem is, uh, when you hire Mark Hamill, even though you may not pay him that much more, the day he records, for the next 50 years of his life. Every time a Batman episode plays somewhere, he gets a, a little bit of money. And the production company that produces the show has to budget for that. And our guys didn't have the money for uh, for American Guild actors. So we just from the start, we there was no one that you know in American movies that we could have used uh, as an actor because – they are uh, Screen Actors Guild, and they would get these residuals. And nine times out of ten, this doesn't make any difference because the shows aren't successful. But to their credit, for the X-Men people, X-Men has played billions of times. Of, of you know, It's played everywhere around the world forever, and it's still playing. And so every time it plays on Hulu, um, if we had American actors – somebody would be making a note of it and marking down five cents to go to each of them for every time it shows. So wow. that, that's, why, that's why it was cast in Canada, and all the voices are Canadian. Um, so so what ha- um, to, wow. to answer your question, we realized, oh, gee, we, we don't really know the Canadian, you know, we don't know the people up there. We're just going to have to trust. We had a couple of our producers go up, producer and then Larry the director go up and sit in on all the casting sessions and one of the big one of the chapters of the book is the first session was terrible we got we got we got uh uh recordings of everybody's uh auditions sent down here and we listened and they all sounded like they were auditioning for Scooby Doo and that's because too you know in in fairness that had been what they had been auditioning for up until X-Men. X-Men was a different kind of show, and it just hadn't been a thing yeah. that the people doing voice talent there had yeah. been exposed to. They just weren't ready for it. In, yeah. in terms of in terms of approaching it as, as not a kid's cartoon. So our guys went back, and they redid and redid. They, they, did, they redid the pilot four times to finally get the voices they wanted. And this, we give credit, credit to Sidney Iwander, that, the executive at Fox, who, who knew what it needed to sound like who knew the kind of seriousness and the drama that needed to be in the voices. And he said, wait a minute, you know, we're just, we're using people that are just from the cartoon community in, uh, in Canada, in Toronto. He said, Toronto is a huge theater market. Let's call, have the casting director call a bunch of Shakespearean actors from the theater community. So when they went back for the second round of auditions, 
they had all these people that would be doing, you know, Hamlet and King Lear doing Xavier and Magneto, and they were wonderful. And so, so we got this next group of recordings back, and we were so relieved because we just we, we just thought it was over. We thought if if they're going to sound like this, we just need to stop writing these scripts because it just doesn't make any sense. We just thought it thought the show was dead. Um, but then they put their foot down. They spent the money. They recorded, recorded, recorded. I said they recorded four times the first two part uh, pilot, and finally got it to where they were happy. And we listened to it, and we were thrilled, and then it kind of took off, and then it went from there. And they all, in interviewing them, because I didn't, I, I didn't get to meet any of them. I was, you know, bent over doing the next round of scripts yeah. while they were recording those. Wow. Um, they, had a, they, they had a great time, and they said, listening to each other being serious and intense, it's like each one upped their game. It was like a little bit of a inter-actor competition. Like, oh well, you're going to be that intense as Professor X. Well, watch me. I'm, you know, I'm Apocalypse. I'll kick your ass. <laughs> and so that it just it just built on itself, and that's why the voices are so good because Fox insisted on getting dramatic voices. There were so many uh, stages in the production of X Men when things could have just collapsed, and somehow, like, if the voice talent had not, if they hadn't worked as hard as they had to get the perfect voices that we all still hear in our heads. You know, it, it it would not have it wouldn't have worked. It just would not have worked. And and Eric, I enjoyed the story, um, the great Cal Dodd, the the voice of, yeah. the voice of Wolverine, because um, okay, be honest that he's the voice you hear in your head. But he yeah. uh, by accident had gotten not by accident, but uh, he was not doing voiceover. He was um, he was doing jingles like like Chrysler commercials. Hi, you can buy a Toronto, you know. Toronto Chrysler minivans for you. And, you know, he, he was a he was a singer. He was a jet. He's a great singer, by the way. Yeah, he's, he's putting that out there. He's yeah. got a CD and it's wonderful. He, he, he like he, the, the, the Wolverine sings like Sinatra songs in it's, in his spare time. Uh, oh my God! Yeah. So him and Kevin so Conroy need to make an album together. <laughs> so he had been uh, contacted by a friend of his who was sending in uh, uh, who was herself an agent. And was sending in some folks and said, "I've heard about this thing. You know, are, this X Men thing. You, uh, you, you want to go in and read for a part, which was not what he typically did, but went in and was sitting at the microphone. And the folks in the booth are saying, okay, you know, here's here are the sides. Here's what the character is, is. And you know, he's feral. He's 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 this animalistic. He's he's this 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 animalistic." Uh, beast of a of a person with a lot of rage. With a lot of rage, and so so Cal Dodd growled into the microphone. Not because he was cued to do it, just because oh okay, and he just let out a growl. And that became the Wolverine growl. And like every, the three heads in the in the um, in the booth, they just their necks snap. They all just go, that's it, that's our Wolverine. <laughs> he was the first person to come in and kind of get that. That that growly earthy feel, and that's that's how he got the job. Wasn't expecting it. Didn't even know what it was going to be, but that's how he became our Wolverine. That's, and then the I, episodes where he would have to fight Sabretooth, uh, it would really? always be this. You know, they're always those two particular characters are very growly and gravelly. And he said it would, he wouldn't be able to talk the next day after recording <laughs> one of those kind of episodes because it was just be, be, be yelling, yeah, be yelling at each other so hard. And he said it just it just tore his throat up. He said he just oh, he'd wow. see he'd see Sabretooth is going to be in this episode. Oh mm. God, I'm screwed now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yo, I I 
I love the voice cast. Like you guys are saying, if they are the voices I still hear in my head. So this, especially Kyle Dodd. Like he is my Wolverine. He will always be my Wolverine. I love Hugh Jackson. Don't get me oh, wrong. Absolutely. The voice in my head is Kyle Dodd. Um, yeah. I love hearing you say that. That's very nice. Thank you for that. Because they are I great, talented people. I love them so yeah. much. Oh, and All there's right. one uh, um, a, a quick side story, uh, Eric, with our with, with both of our affections for Star Trek. And here's how bifurcated it all was. We were here in Los Angeles the whole time. The voices were all being done up in Toronto. We never there was never the luxury of going up there and meeting the cast. There was never the time for that. Um, and it wasn't until quite a few years later the realization of the the talented actor who who voiced the voice of Apocalypse, which yeah. to me is still the voice of Apocalypse. God bless yeah. Oscar Isaac, yeah. but. Yeah, John um, Colicos. Yeah, he, and, yeah. <laughs> and, and he, he, he's, which is probably my favorite voice of the whole show. And what we discovered, which we didn't know, but the the rest of the cast did because they knew who this guy was. Who he's sadly he's no longer with us. So I couldn't interview him. He wow. was the first. He was the first Klingon. In, on Star Trek in 1967. Yes, yay! <laughs> he was the commander. He was the Klingon commander. The first time anyone ever used the word Klingon in the world, it was about him. And he was wow. our apocalypse. That is insane. Yeah. I did not know that at all. That is a cool, uh, that is a cool fact. Um, wow, yeah. incredible. I love uh, Apocalypse again. Like I was talking about Wolverine, Apocalypse also is an iconic voice in that cartoon. So, yeah. sorry, I'm gonna move on to the next question though. So, sure. was there ever was there ever plans to tackle an animated adaptation of X Men for film? Just speaking like the the Batman series of films and the um, the super the, yeah. the, the DC universe films. Boy, I, I wish. <laughs> yeah, we wish. Um, <laughs> I can't speak to 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 how it 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 actually ended up kind of playing out, but by the time the X-Men series wrapped in 97. Um, Marvel was, was suffering from serious financial prob- uh, pains, I'll say pains. And I just don't think it was ever in the cards for them to, uh, to pursue that because they, you know, various rights were being sold off uh, to, to different companies, like the deal with Spider-Man, with Fox, and with Disney. You know, it's, it, it's very convoluted, and I just don't think there was a single guiding force that could have done that, but it sure would be great if they did it now. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. The, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but it's you know Marvel doesn't seem to be exactly pushing the X Men these days. Yeah. Because yeah. Disney owns That's Marvel, and Fox, 20th Century Fox owns the rights to make the X Men movies, and so they're competitors, and they don't want to help each other. So Disney doesn't want Marvel to have Wolverine or the X Men in their books anymore. And we've we have reached out to to Disney and to other companies that in terms of trying to get a Blu-ray edition of the series released or getting a cleaned-up version of the DVD series, you know, back out there in the marketplace, and no company has interest because they don't own it 100 percent. So there wow. you go. That's incredible. I would love a Blu-ray version of that show. It could use it definitely. Oh, oh wow. thank you. Me too. <laughs> Oh, my God, I would love that. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go on to my next question. Um, how would, how do you guys get through, uh, get through writer's block, or did you already know what direction you wanted to go with the, with the show? 
Well, uh, it's kind of a an ad, an attitude thing. If it, you know, we've been, uh, you know, I've been working in the business for seven or eight years by then, and Julia had for five or six, and my, you know, the the guys that were trying to figure out where the, you know, how to what 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 stories to tell. You know, you know, had been I'd been writing with for on and off for fifteen, twenty years, and we kind of get you, when when you start doing it for a living, and you'll you'll miss your rent or your you'll or you know whatever if 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 you don't get the work in on time. There's a certain uh, uh, there's a certain not urgency, but you you understand that well. You just gotta kind of die, have to dive in and and go with your first instinct and and hope it's right because um, a lot of writer's block comes from wondering you know what could I write and you know there eight hundred you know comic book issues and there are all these characters and where should we go and you just say okay well I've got a day and a half to to make my decisions and I've got six days to to crank it out uh, okay let's and and you just I don't know it's weird. Um, if it were something that I weren't getting paid for and didn't have a and didn't have a deadline, then writer's block might come in because you wonder, oh gee, what where do I start? Where you know why one thing rather than another? But you know in the business you're staring at all those people around the table, and each one of those people has 20 people waiting to do some work for you. You know artists or uh, recorder or animators or you know whoever that this entire chain of human beings depended on you making a decision. So you just you you got to do it. There's no there's no way around it. And one of the one of the things that makes the cuts through writer's block for me because I used to have it more when I was younger and less experienced is having been through. Worrying and worrying and worrying and taking eight, you know, eight or ten different tries at something until, you know, you hand something in versus just going with your first idea. And I, I haven't found that that mulling it over ten times gives me a better track record than just doing the first thing that comes to my head. So, uh, just from a kind of practical standpoint, you look at yourself and say, why? Why put yourself through that, or why put everybody behind? Unless you know, unless you really don't know, if you've got some idea, uh, you know, of, of something to go with, you just have to grab it and go with it. Because we just we don't have we don't have the luxury of uh, of pondering the thing for you know an extra hour, much less an extra week. Absolutely, that's it's amazing how focused you can be when when the train is leaving the station and your delivery has to be there at this moment on this you know at this time on this date uh but also you're not writing typically like on an animated series you're not writing in a vacuum i i find that writer's block is most often a, pro- a a problem when when like eric said there's no deadline or there's no outside forces saying hey you know you need to you know we're all working on this show together if you're trying to pursue something you want to do by yourself that's the hardest time to sit down and Force yourself to to focus on it. Um, it it and it it's more of a collaborative process. In that, by the time you're sitting down looking at the computer screen trying to write the story out, 
there's been some input. You know what the you know what the story's going to be. The challenge is more in coming up with pitches to bring in to pitch um, in a timely manner because uh, you've got to get that. That's just you staring at a blank piece of paper trying to come up with something that that's that's right for the show. That's the harder writer's block place for writer's block. I think um, once once you've been told to go to script or go to outline or um, go to you know from premise to go forward. It's a lot easier to just, you know, grind it out because um, there's a lot more uh, material for you to work with at that point. Yeah, I mean, for for me, for us, the hardest part is deciding what the story is. I mm-hmm. mean, after, after that, after that first half page, little uh, idea for what the story is, getting it from a half a page to forty pages is is it's more like craft. It's like okay, you've done this so many dozens of times before, you know, you can do it again. But coming up with what story is going to work versus an, uh, another idea which might sound kind of cool in a meeting but you get down to it and it just doesn't make sense or it's not any fun or it doesn't fit the characters coming up with the right stories is really it's the hard it's the hardest part by far for us anyway i mean other people mm-hmm. other people are better at it i had a i had an office mate at disney that would could he told him come up with twenty ideas for for X Men, and he'd have twenty, you know, three sentence ideas for X Men before lunch. He just he just wouldn't do it. <laughs> I don't know how he did it, but um, he wasn't a great writer. But he he was confident in that way, and that's to me, it's really it's it's hard. I can imagine. I can imagine. I, I mean, I've tried to write, and it's not that simple. And I have writer's block all the time. Um, go ahead. Were you going to say anything? Something? Sorry? No? Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. I got one. Hello. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, we're still here. <laughs> Sorry, I, was, I wasn't sure someone was going to talk. <laughs> All right, so I got one final question for you. So did you want to use Logan Wolverine more or less during that time because of his popularity? Well, you know, um, I'll, just speaking as one of the writers of the episodes in the show, uh, it was a ch- every episode itself was a challenge trying to address the cast. There was a big cast of players here, and servicing each one or explaining why we weren't seeing X, Y, Z in this particular episode that that was you know that that took a certain amount of uh, craftsmanship right there. Uh, and and Logan's popularity, Wolverine's popularity in the first thirteen. Um, it, 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 that wasn't the same Wolverine that that we've come to know and love over time. He was he was a he was one of the cast like everybody else. He he was certainly one of the easier ones to write for, just being all angry, you know, be um, able to do what he did um, in terms of you know, claw, you, you know the adamantium claws and such. Um, he was certainly fun and fine to write for, but in terms of trying to write around him or or trying to accommodate him in every episode. That was, I don't recall that being a challenge at that point. Yeah, no, I, I think from my point of view as, as kind of being the supervisor had, who had to make sure that I, I had a real sense that I wanted to spread around who we saw so that so that the fans wouldn't forget about various characters. And so my I think my knee-jerk was, well, everybody's going to want to put scenes in with Wolverine. So I almost was pulling back a little. I said, well... You know, Jubilee was probably, for most of the writers, the person they went to least because she was so different 
being a teenager, you know, being this kid that was, and so I think I consciously would try to think of things for her, or sometimes Jean, you know, who might not have, you know, it's real easy to, to create dramatic scenes with Storm or with, with Wolverine. Um, but my, I was, so to answer your question, his popularity made me work to try to include the other people. So it wasn't just like, um, like Kobe Bryant and the Lakers and, and nobody else, you know, on the, on the floor, but him, I wanted it to be a team that everybody, everybody knew all the characters and liked all the characters and was constantly reminded of all the characters versus it becoming Wolverine and the X-Men. And that was a, that was a danger just because he's so compelling a person that, uh, that if we hadn't been careful, I think it could have become that. I agree. Uh, it could have easily been. There was actually an animated show called Wolverine, the X-Men, not long enough. Well, not mm-hmm. long. It was long. Like yeah. 10 years later. Yeah, I was gonna say, it, was, it was a lot longer. Than yeah, well, it was a while back. Yeah. Yeah. Like maybe a couple of years ago that they had to cancel that. Um, anyway, that's, that's the end of this interview. Um, before I pass it on to Juwan, I really want to say it was, it's been a complete honor. And you guys are a terrific interview. It was incredible. Oh, that's so kind. Again, we really appreciate hearing that. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And it it went exactly how I had always dreamt it to go if we were able to speak to the minds behind, you know, some of our favorite shows. I wish I just wasn't sweating as much. Right? Yeah. I mean, you know, (laughs) I think it's a napkin. (laughs) You guys have been. uh, He's like that normally. Don't worry. Yeah, he's like that normally. He's like that normally. I'm on, I'm on okay. high street right now. <laughs> um, no, so we're going to get into the news with you guys. Um, talk just okay. a little bit of news uh, while we have you. So I'm going to kick it over to Caitlin so she can run down some of our news topics. Okay. Um, again, Eric and Julia, thank you for being here with us. Um, the you know, I, I can't speak for anybody else, but for myself, it was a huge part of my childhood. And uh, that's that's how I met Wolverine. I'm a huge Wolverine fan. So uh, let's go ahead and get to the news. Uh, our first story tonight is uh, DC Comics and Warner Brothers have announced that they'll be making a streaming service from their content which will uh, feature not only the much-anticipated third season of Young Justice Outsiders, but also a new live-action TV show featuring the Teen Titans, which is going to be from the minds of Jeff Johns and Greg Berlanti. Uh, The rumors are that Nightwing, Beast Boy, Raven, and Starfire will headline that series. Uh, Speaking from the the previous topic of there being a streaming service, Eric and Julia, from a business standpoint of things, how do you feel um, about that? How, do you think that that's a, that's a good direction for DC to go in? Would you like to see Marvel do a little bit more of the same or, or if, if not exactly the same? I got to tell you, it's, it's crazy looking back on when X-Men and when Batman and when uh, Power Rangers and all these shows, how, how TV was delivered back then. And we're not kidding. It was, you had three networks and then you had Fox. And if you were a kid and your family was fortunate enough, you might have had a VHS machine at home and you may have been allowed to record something. Otherwise you were running home after school to catch the afternoon strip shows or, um, you know, getting your bowl of cereal and watching it Saturday morning and then waiting for the repeats because 
you know, if you missed one, you had to wait until they reran it. And then here we are, just you know, a, a flash later, and I can watch basically anything, anywhere, anytime I want to on any device I've got. I still can't wrap my head around that fully. It's still astonishing to me that that kind of thing is available. Mm-hmm. Now, the only challenge I see with um, uh, with streaming services is is people aren't going to necessarily get to kind of accidentally sample something because and then discover, oh, this is something I'm interested in, this is something I like, which was, a, it had a certain charm back in the day where you, you'd flip around on your channels and you'd see something, eh, maybe not, and then you'd watch it for a few minutes and, you, and you'd find you'd like it. Um, the concern for me is that it's going to just you know, uh, create even, even tinier, tinier slices of, of fandom that don't get a chance to kind of uh, uh, cross-pollinate because, mm-hmm. you know, everyone's watching what they want to only, and they don't even know about the stuff next door. That's it, it was it was kind of cool when we were when when we were growing up that, say, half the kids at school would have watched an episode of something the night before, and and that that was what everybody was talking about. I mean, it's still with with I I, I guess with. Uh, Social media being what it is, if something's good enough, it's still going to get uh, the attention, and everybody's still going to get over to it. But as far as streaming goes, we're work, we're currently paying the bills, working for Fran, uh, one of the shows we're doing some scripts for for a friend of ours is a Netflix show. That's right. And there, it's just uh, so we're just it's it's part of the world. It's where all the it's where all the money is, and. It's, uh, I, I, you know, the. It's it's astounding that that there are so many opportunities. If you're a real comic book geek these days, you can be 24/7 with all the different shows that are on, animated and I mean more live action than than animated. And but it's just, I just think that the, I, I hope that the market can support it. I mean that's one of the worries out here for the writers or for the people that produce the shows. Is if you've got, I don't know, 500 channels, and if you've got 80 different superhero shows going, is there enough money and interest around to support them and pay people salaries to produce them? And just wonder if you know if it's sustainable. That's that's the worry, kind of on the professional side, is that where's this all going? It's great right now because everybody's working because there's so much, there's so many channels to fill, but we just one you know cuz there may be a writer strike you know in a couple of days mm-hmm. and that's kind of indicative of the idea that well the money is really all spread out all over the place now and you know Netflix has it now but you know 3 years from now who'll be producing what and we don't know and it's, it gets confusing and and the people that produce the shows have to try to figure out how to make a you know just how to pay the bills out of it and mm-hmm. it's it's become, it's exciting, but it's also confusing, and that's that's you know, you know when you talk about streaming, that's the first thing that comes to my mind is how the more channels there are, the more ways to see this stuff. Just how do you, how do you how do you support it? How do you how do you pay for the programming? Is you know that's that's what hits our heads. Mhm. Mhm. Um. Uh, let's see, uh, Dane. What do you think about all this? Um, I, I mean, as far as streaming services uh, for for DC and, and Warner Bros. specifically, 
I think that if they fill it with enough content uh, for fans, because I mean, what, what you're what you're talking about is very much similar to the WWE Network, where it's a niche market. It, it's it's uh, specific people, like a smaller demographic, are going to gravitate towards a DC streaming service. But if you're giving them an opportunity to be able to watch their shows, Arrow, all the CW shows basically included, their animated shows, and then exclusives that are exclusively, you know, like like Young Justice from um, from uh, Greg Wiseman, or if Berlanti and um, Jones work on this, or Johns, I should say, work on this project for Teen Titans, that gives people a reason to try it out. Uh, I would definitely think that they would need to make it cheaper. I'm just wondering how many things are collectively going to go streaming-wise until cable starts really taking a chunk and really starts getting affected by it. Because I feel like in the next couple of years, you're going to be able to buy certain packages for your Roku or, or whatever you have, basically, and there's going to be no reason to watch cable. And hopefully the good thing about that will be that this will be the downfall of the Nelson um, rating system, which I think is extremely outdated and just – needs to go away, uh, gets rid of good programming based off of, you know, an old school way of doing it. When people watch stuff now, maybe not live and maybe, you know, in a different format. So that's how I feel about it. I think it's a good idea, but it's going to start small. Okay. And, uh, Joelle, what do you think? I think it's, uh, incredible, honestly, because like, I was thinking about it for a while for like on the Marvel side, because all their movies and, and, everything they've been doing lately. But I think if this this I think it's a baldy choice because not every not everybody's a DC fan to begin with and to ask people to not and you're luring people in with Young Justice season three because everyone especially me was calling to have a season three because I felt like it was unjustly cancelled. So to see that coming back in a stream a specific streaming service for D C I thought it's ballsy. Uh, um but I, I, I give them credit for for swinging for the fences, so I'm, I'm but I am excited. I'm not gonna say I'm not excited. I'm excited for Young Justice season three and that live action Teen Titans show. Uh, I can't wait. I can't wait to see what happens next with this. I think by we'll know more by the end of the year. So cool. I'm cool with it actually. Okay, uh, Jawan, what do you think? Um, I look at it to where it's like, uh, from what they've said so far, to me, it's like the potatoes. And you need, what? it's like potatoes. You need the meat to it. And I think the right. meat that they could add to it is to, and I know you guys might, might not think this might be the best idea, but I'd say the best way to get people to get the streaming service. <laughs> yeah, what else is there, right? <laughs> the best way to get people to get the streaming service, uh, take everything from CW and put it there. If you think about it, Arrow. All of it? All of it. Arrow, um, huh. Arrow and Flash are in very high demand. Um, yeah. So uh, let, let's say let's say you don't even do all of them. You do Arrow and Flash. Um, you're going to then see who are the real fans of the show because they'll pay to see those those shows exclusively on your uh, your streaming service. And what you could also do to kind of sweeten that a little bit for people who you know uh, are paying for it, you could because you know how sometimes it'll it, it, it has to be weekly because sometimes they do reshoots for like the, the back half of, of the season. But let's say you have the first half of the season already shot. It's perfected. You're good to go. Right. You could release that first half set of the season um, exclusively on your streaming service. You can watch the first half of, of Arrow, like the first 15 episodes. It's like, like you do on Netflix. Like you do with Marvel and, and their Netflix shows. Um, honestly, I think people would gravitate to that a lot more. Because uh, how often do we hate uh, 
every December for these shows. They're gone to like January 24th. Right, which I completely understand. I completely understand. But I'm saying these are things you could do to kind of add to it, to give you the meat of this streaming service for people to go, you know what? There's no way I'm missing out on seeing the first 15 episodes of the play. While everyone else might have to wait, you know, uh, until they get the streaming service or whatever to see it. I want to see the first 15 episodes. Also very ballsy. Very ballsy. (laughs) But it's worth a shot because those two shows out of, you know, what is it, five of them, Right. Uh, six very soon with Black Lightning, um, yeah. are in very high demand. So that would be a great way to get people to come to the streaming service. Like, like I said, the meat of it. That would be the meat of it. My fear specifically goes towards, like, if the CW shows, like, they're not going to deal with Netflix. You can go rewatch the whole season, like, I think, right now. That that just passed. Well, not passed, going to pass. When it passes, you're going to be able to go back and watch it right away. So my fear is, like, if it all goes to the DC streaming app, I mean, I'm going to get it regardless, but I'm more afraid for other people. I guess maybe that's not really the best way to put it. But <laughs> I mean, I guess it's the same thing you kind of feel with, with the Marvel stuff. Like, if you don't have Netflix or whatever, then right, yeah, you, you, you're missing out. Hmm? I hate that. Yeah. Well, I mean, be, before we go to Canaan, I guess, Gerald, what, what, what is your I mean, you could go to Canaan first because everybody's agreeing to it, but I just hate the idea. <laughs> Why do you hate the idea? Then? I mean, for the simple fact, you, you want to start a streaming service and you're going to put Young Justice or whatever else content on it, mm-hmm. that's kind of breaking the deal with Netflix. If you have a deal with streaming all your DC live action shows. Right. Mm-hmm. And then if you're going to put the DC CW live action shows on your streaming service, what the hell are you going to do with Netflix? You paid them multi-million dollar contract. Now right. you're going to break that? Oh, I don't think that's going to happen. And no, then, like that. I don't know if that happened like that at all. It won't, it won't right. happen like that. And to be completely honest with you, it's kind of the same thing if you think about it. Think about how many people go, well, I don't have basic cable. So I'll just wait until, uh, and as you said, that once the lot. show's in, yeah. they go right to Netflix. Good. They're like, I'll miss out on the whole season live on, on television. I'll, I'll just it. watch it when it goes to, but to the my, streaming. My, what would get me on board is if it, if it was like how they set it up with Hulu. How where if you missed the episode, you know, if you miss the first five episodes or you miss an episode, they're like, okay, the flash comes on Tuesday. If you work Tuesday night, you're like, damn, like, I missed the episode. Hulu had it up at midnight. If, now, now, if they do something like that, that'd be perfectly fine. But like, what, what I'm saying is they'll be giving you the first 15 episodes. So you're not waiting for, for anything. It's, it's exclusive to the DC uh, streaming service. So it's not still on CW is what I'm saying. You only get to see it through their 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 service. What people, there's a lot of people. That's the thing, though. There's a lot of people who can't afford, you know, cable or you know, internet. So people who rely on just the basic channels, which is like CW, Fox Five, CBS, like when they get those basically those five channels, it's a lot of people in America who be like, listen, I can't afford cable. So I, I I'll rely say on this. These I'll say this. I'll say this. What what you'd be paying for Netflix is probably around what DC is going to be charging. Surprise! They probably be like, you know, twelve ninety nine. They're not going to overcharge it. That's how much Netflix. Yeah, that's how much Netflix is. They're not going to overcharge it. I'm going to say this: they're not going to they're not going to they're not going to overcharge it because they do want people to want to go and get it. So you're not going to overcharge because people are just going to go, nah. I just wait for someone to maybe put it up somewhere. Not only that, I think they're I think they're going for more. 
like I keep on, like I said before, like the WWE Network. They're not going to try to be another Netflix. It's going to be more people that are really that big of DC fans that Warner Brothers knows they can capitalize off of. I don't think it's well, it's so much they're going to be trying to compete with the big boy that is Netflix. Right. I'm kind of curious right. on what Kanan had to say about it. What's your thoughts, mm-hmm. Kanan? Yeah, I, I think I, I really think it's a great idea because one, I, I trust what Jeff Johns is doing. I think he's he's kind of getting in there. He's he's getting things set in motion, and I think once if the deal completely goes through with AT&T, then I think you're going to see DC have kind of carte blanche with their budget when it comes to the streaming service. No, it's not going to be a movie-style budget, but I think you're going to see improvement in the shows, and if they did go to the streaming service, then I think that would be huge because you would see uh, you know, better graphics. Uh, you're going to see more content. Uh, the only thing is I think, uh, you know, we'll see other – um, stuff as well, like the animated shows, you know, all the animated movies, like Dane said, the WWE Network, you know, maybe even some of the older animation, uh, like Super Friends and all that will be on there. So it's just going to be more content than just them pushing Young Justice. I know that will be will be huge, but, you know, you can also stream all of the old DC movies that have come out, all the upcoming DCEU films. I think it's going to be a one-stop shop. Uh, for all around DC, and you know they may even throw in some uh, shows, you know, that feature, uh, you know, like a creator corner with like Jim Lee and uh, Dan Jurgens and you know stuff like that, where you know they're showing people how to become artists and how to create comic books and stuff like that. So I I think this is I think this is really good uh, for for everyone, and I think if um, you know if the deal with AT and T goes through, then I don't think DC and them is gonna or Warner Brothers is really going to mind uh, moving their stuff from Netflix because I think people will want to uh, purchase the streaming package. Mm-hmm. Can, I, can I just say uh, something okay. like a little? Um, real quick, real quick. Real quick, if, if they really going to do the streaming service, I want, like, the original Wonder Woman TV show. That's the 70s, like, the 60s. I want all that. I felt it that you were going to You want Linda Carter? I'm, I'm sure. I want Linda Carter. I want uh, the original Barry Allen, the guy who plays Jet. Want the sixties? You know, I want that. I want all the Adam West movies. I mean, that's a great way to add add content. You know what I'm saying? I want all that. Like, like Juan said, the meat. Like, I I want to. I want We might get. I want a big steak the size of my back. Oh my goodness, Joe. Anyway, go ahead, Caitlin. (laughs) Sorry, Caitlin. All right, that's all right. Um, okay, guys, uh, Robert Zemeckis is rumored to be in talks to direct DC's The Flash. Umberto Gonzalez from The Wrap has stated that all that happened was a meeting between WB and Zemeckis. But regardless, um, I'd like to throw this to Kanan again because he's getting a little he's, he's getting a little pushed aside. Um, how would you feel about the director of Forrest Gump and the Back to the Future franchise? possibly directing The Flash. Well, we know that Robert Zemeckis does great with, uh, you know, movies set in, in the past and in the future. And, and so, you know, The Flash kind of uh, can go in both directions. But Zemeckis has a very good resume with films. Uh, as, you know, if anybody's seen some of his, um, you know, kind of, I don't really want to say unpopular, but like with The Frighteners, that movie was really, really good. So I feel like he could come in and give not only uh, you know a, a movie with you know a humor tone, but also you know kind of that 
that kind of dark comedy um, that you could see from The Flash. Because, you know, The Flash is a very um, flamboyant, sarcastic, jokey-type character. Uh, I think he would be a, a good fit. He's somebody that I wouldn't have even thought of them entertaining. I'm not even sure that it's a movie that he would want to do. I mean, like Umberto said, they're just in talks. I don't even know if it's going to go any further than that. But Zemeckis has a resume that if he's given the job, I think he would knock it out of the park. So I I would be, you know, I'm on board with him uh, getting the job. At this point, I just would take any director as long as The Flash gets made because that was the one movie that they seem to not be able to, to nail down at the moment. Yep, absolutely. Uh, let's see, uh, Dane, what do you think? Well, I mean, if you're asking me if I think Zermeckis could handle a Flash movie, the answer is yes. Do I think that it's going to happen? No. Uh, I think that they might have talked to him just like they might have talked to Mel Gibson for Suicide Squad. And we're, if we're at a game for DC standpoint, for DC Films, either one of those directors, if anyone out there is like, no, I would rather have a smaller director, blah, 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 blah. All right, I love the idea of giving, you know, a smaller guy a, a shot. But if you're saying that you would not want to give the chance for one of our favorite directors from beforehand to try one of these, I think you're crazy. Because Robert Zemeckis would be able to do this in all sorts of ways. Uh, I, I think that he is um, – in a different way than their last choice because, uh, you know, when they had Fumi Iwa with, uh, from Dope, you know, that was obviously One Direction. This would be a completely different take on it. But he knows what he's doing when it comes to sci-fi, when it comes to that type of family uh, element. Uh, you know, he's a great director. Uh, I can't say anything bad about him. So I would love for it to happen, but I don't see it actually happening. Julia and Eric, what do you think? <laughs> Well, well I, I've been aware of him for a long time, and yeah, you're right. You could really trust him. I mean, he's. I mean, he's done things that he would take. He would be really. He'd be serious about it. I mean, besides the fact that he's he's comfortable with humor and action, he wouldn't. You know, there, there's some directors that just think, oh well, I can throw a bunch of spectacle up there on the screen and and have fun with it just because oh, it's it's it's. Uh, comic book characters, but I think he would. The, his, his first question would be would be digging into the human side of it, and so I think he'd bring the humanity to you. I don't know. Right. If, I don't know if he'd find the right tone. That seems to be the hardest thing with some of these feature these comic based features. Some of them just find the tone and they stick with it, and it's wonderful. And sometimes they they don't, and you just takes you out of the movie. But but I I I agree with the other guys. Uh, he would be a really good bet yep. uh, uh, to to do it. Okay, and I don't think we have heard from Joel on this. So, what do you think, Joel? I think if it happens, it'd be uh, it'd be great. Um, Robert, like Robert Zemeckis has a great resume, and I think he fits. Uh, he made time travel really fun and cool back in the day, and flashed deals with time travel especially now a lot more than i remember when i was a kid so it would be really cool if it, if it actually worked out that way but i do have an update on the latest with robert zemeckis um i'm both reported i think it was yesterday um that robert zemeckis's next film which shoots this summer just got a, a november 2018 release date 
So if he does do the flash, it probably won't be for over a year from now. So because it looks like he's going to be busy this summer. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I don't think we have heard from Gerald. What do you, What do you think about this? About him directing the the film? Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like. He may be the next director that might say Saranara to the film. Because this is what, the third director that they confirmed that says he's going to be directing? No, he's been caught. Oh, he's been caught. He had a meeting. That's okay, all well, he had done. a meeting, but he's like the third. He's only the second? I just wanted was like. All right, well, he's the second guy to, they, to well, be in talks. Well, they had a guy. First, who's the first guy they had? Like, yeah, and he left. He may he be was the, actually attached. To yeah, yeah. This, and everything. You know, this yeah, guy this may guy be the second one. It, it just seems like the Flash movie is getting bad luck with directors. I mean, I hope he directs it. I, I kind of, honestly, if I can pick a director, I would love Kevin Smith to do it. I just really? might pick. I would love Kevin Smith to, to do the I, Flash. Over Zemeckis. Over Zemeckis, no, obviously not. Right? Yeah, do, do, Come do, on, Gerald. Okay. I'll be honest. Gerald. Listen, listen, Gerald. Listen. <laughs> Have you guys seen the episode he directed? There's you, a good okay. episode, but TV. Okay, to yeah, but did know. you see the episode of the Flash uh, going into Speed Force? How incredible that episode no, was! No, you're absolutely right. I think Kevin I would has love, the he's... talent, but over Zemeckis. I mean, even Kevin Smith will look at you stupid. I'm just saying. He's one of my favorite directors. I'm not throwing shade, you know, at the guy, but I I would love to see him. You know, I would love to see DC say, hey, we want to want you to tap into this. I hope one day Kevin Smith gets something. I mean, to be honest with you, I don't ever see Kevin Smith coming out of television. I don't Um, either. I mean, he's he's done movies. movies. For superhero movies. Superhero movies. Kevin Smith is even the guy. He doesn't want it. Right. Even when he was asked, uh, someone was like, why don't you direct your buddy Ben Batman film? He was like, no, 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 no. I'm staying away from that. So it doesn't seem like it's anything he's jumping to do. Um, Kevin Smith, I would say on the short list would be on would be number ten, even on the short list. Um, <laughs> short list. But no, um, Zemeckis directing it would be perfect. Um, honestly, when I heard the idea of him uh, possibly being attached, the first thing I thought is uh, your Marty McFly is definitely. Um, What's his name? Ezra Miller. Ezra Miller yeah. He fits it. He he seems like you could get the comedy out of him that you want from your Flash. Right. Um, you know him being like the kid kind of member of the Justice League. He's been a fun comedy. Right, right. He would. He's actually the Spider-Man of the DCE. The but, one that yeah. that that that's only in it uh, to have fun, to be with friends. The idea of looking up to, uh, you know, somewhat yeah. his heroes or these myths. Um, so I think he could definitely do that. And I honestly, when I thought, when they said his name, first thing I thought is now you have to put in Jay Garrett. So you can have that, you can have, you know, the, the back to the future type of, type that, of vibe between the two of them. Tom Hanks. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, cause picture Tom Edward Hanks, Miller, man, Forrest Gump. Tom Hanks. Tom picture, Hanks is Jay Garrett. Cause oh. all I keep picturing in my mind is picture, uh, Ezra Miller's flash continuously yeah, running yeah, through yeah. the speed force. And Tom Hanks is um and uh keeps snagging him out of the out of the speed force telling him you gotta stop changing time and stuff. Uh, yeah, I could picture him going on a whole time trip uh with that whole aspect. So he to me is perfect out of um between him and Rick. I think right. he's definitely more suited uh, and definitely better choice, um, to direct the play. Right. 
Uh, let's go ahead and shift some gears a little bit and talk about the writer strike. Uh, Julia and Eric, you had mentioned it before, and it's seeming more and more like an inevitability. Um, so how do you think the industry will be affected by it ultimately? You know, it's interesting because uh, in the world of writing uh, for, for in, in the entertainment industry, the Writers Guild does a tremendous job, and we're both members, uh, but they tend to handle exclusively live-action material. Um, not, not even animated features. Right. And, uh, it's, it's an old historical thing where the Animation Guild was started in the 1930s, and it was started by artists rather than writers. And because so they didn't use script writers back then. They used joke people to sort of yeah. string together gags. So, so there, the, all the work, it's weird, all the work in Hollywood in animation and both movies and TV will continue if there's a guild strike, so it won't affect them at all, which is odd. But, but the live action, boy, when the Writers Guild strikes, this town shuts down, and last time it cost a couple billion dollars worth of lost business, and it it it's it's a scary thing because the town's working really full bore right now, and if it happened, it everything just goes poof, just just and and you don't want it to be long, you know. Last time I think it was a hundred days. Um, you hope that they'd work it out, but it's it's this weird deal where. Um, in some ways, you know, it's like with, with, with actors and some other groups of people, about 5% of the writers in town make really good living, and the other 95% kind of scrape by and, and work freelance and, and make a little here and a little there. So there's not a real generalization you could say about the writer's situation other than, like any business, the studios want to pay them as little as they can, and so there's always a there's always a a tug between you know what they can afford to pay and what they can't. Um, we're just we we wish that if it's going to happen, it, it only lasts for a few days and they resolve it. But um, it's uh, we're not we're not optimistic. I don't think. And the thing is too, we we have family and friends who work in other areas of the entertainment industry, uh, like like lighting people, gaffers. Um, um, studio accountants and the 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 domino effect is is rough you know on on everybody who who then just gets shut down just gets it wouldn't just be the writers i guess is what i'm saying who would be affected by this and as eric said you know it <laughs> you know uh, we are not smoking gold plated cigarettes out here you know we eric and i have managed to craft a wonderful life but um we are we are not in that uh 5% um making the millions every year category. Very, very, very few writers are. Uh, and so the rest of us, you know, who are kind of, I don't mean blue collar, but who are you know, regular workaday writers, uh, the, the gains, I don't mean gains, but the, what the writer's skill is asking for is, <laughs> is, 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 is not unfair. And uh, part of the problem, as I saw historically, was that when DVDs came into existence and suddenly there was this huge revenue stream that Bennett, that was wonderful. Um, writers Guild writers kind of got shut out of that. They everyone kinda, they got like a five thousand dollar bonus if they'd written the show, the the movie, uh, and that was it. Whereas other aspects in the industry got residuals off of that and all these kinds of things. 
And now the DVD market is tanking and, um, and the money's it's in, shrinking. In, so the, a lot of this has to do with you know what you get paid on streaming services, that sort of thing. And that was, again, one of these things that 20 years ago was a tiny thing. And so the fact that the writers kind of got shut out from that wasn't a big deal. But if streaming becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, then if, you know, it's just, what I was saying is from the people that are going to be striking's point of view, there are real reasons for the struggle. But from a from a fan point of view, from someone who wants to watch all those shows, you don't want the disruption because right. it really does. It's just a it's just a a bomb in the middle of Hollywood, and most of the shows just stop. And you know you might have a couple scripts banked. The previous time people were aware of this for about a year ahead of time, and they 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 stock they called it stockpiled scripts for things, and they were able to continue for a couple you know some of them for a month or two afterwards. But this time they haven't, and so most of the you know, most of the series would just would just stop, and it would just what I guess it means would be in the end is things that you were hoping would have a 22 episode series end up will maybe have 14, and things that you were planning to have 10 will end up with six, and they'll just cut it off and then just do another season. It'll just they'll just have to adjust to it, and and I wish that I, I hope that doesn't happen because it it it's it's just it's just bad for everybody. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, Juwan, what do you think about all this, Sam? Uh, I'd say it's it's terrifying. Um, honestly, it's completely terrifying. Uh, you know, because if if it is something that actually happens, it affects everything we know and love. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I said it before, jokingly. I I love Arrow so much that if if anything were to happen <laughs> to season six of Arrow. I'd immediately start like a Kickstarter right now to make sure that these writers get what they deserve. So our shows aren't affected. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really curious to see what what Dane's thoughts are because I know it terrifies me. Dane, what do you think? I'm terrified. Those are my thoughts. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, I'll go small. Um, I remember the last writer's strike, and one of my favorite shows of all time was affected pretty drastically because of that, and that was Dexter. Uh, The first four seasons were amazing, and then the writer's strikes happened. The showrunner wanted more money on top of everything that was going on. He left and departed, and the show collectively, to me, went extremely downhill uh, compared to the top. And I think that was because of a lack of, uh, you know, uh, creativity, basically. I think that the best writers were asking for money that they, de- that they deserve. So, if anything, whatever this affects, I'm not so worried about it. I think it'll work itself out, but I think that the main issue is that the writers deserve the money they're asking for because they're providing us with something that we all enjoy and we all you know, pull from. So, if the big stars are making money, the producers and stuff like that, the writers should definitely be taken care of. Here, 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 here. We won't, we won't argue with you. Yeah, correct. Absolutely, absolutely. Hey, Tatum, what do you think about all this? Are you terrified, or what do you think? Uh, well, I wouldn't say I'm I'm terrified, but I mean it does it does concern me because the last time this happened, um, you know, it went on for over a hundred days. Uh, a lot of great shows 
you know, missed out on, you know, the opportunity for full seasons, and that caused some of their shows to, to be canceled. Uh, a lot of the movies uh, were delayed that people were anticipating. Some of those movies are still sitting on a shelf, uh, unfinished, um, that, you know, haven't seen uh, the light of day because of that. So, yeah, the writer's strike uh, is, you know, is huge in a bad way for a lot of people. I mean, I, I agree. Those people, you know, they wake up every day and, you know, that's that's how they make their living, you know, is writing yep. the shows that people enjoy and they need to be acknowledged and paid what they deserve. I mean, um, you know, as it was alluded to earlier, there are a handful of people that are paid handsomely, but yes, there are a lot of people that wake up and and probably sit at a desk for 24 hours a day trying to make, you know, maybe the equivalent of, you know, minimum wage. I mean, I really don't know what a writer makes, but some of those people may not even make that, um, you know, based on, you know, who they're working for, what they're trying to, uh, you know, what shows they're on. So, I I mean, I, I hope they get it resolved. I don't know why they feel like, you know, these people don't deserve to be paid because without writers, there's no shows. There's no movies. Thank you very there's, much. There's nothing. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you. Yeah, just, yeah, just real quick, one of the weird things that, that has, has brought this up is has to do with, you know, what we're used to now, which I find kind of fun, which is there's a lot of series now that'll that'll just just do 10 episodes. And uh, that's all, that's okay. I mean, not everything can not every idea can sustain a 22 episode season but one of the weird deals is is that the studios have contracts with some of the writers and these are some of the more fortunate ones but let's say last couple of years you've worked you worked on bones or something you know on on green arrow something that was on on a, a network that had 22 episodes and so you would your contract would say you get 22 fees for this year you get 22 paychecks and like as opposed to 52 because it's it's not a weekly thing you get 22 paychecks for working on the show with us well then if they switch to a like a fargo deal where you've got 10 episodes they still will say okay we we're going to keep you for a year you can't work for anybody else you can't write on outside of here outside of fargo but we'll give you 10 paychecks and that's one of the problems is that their studios aren't being flexible and saying well heck if we're just if we're going to we're going to pay you you know, only 10 checks this year instead of 22 will let you do another show on the side. It's, just, it, it's, it's weird. It's like the business is changing, but the contracts aren't. And that's one of the, it's one of the things that is, is causing some problems. And, and let me jump in here. You're not getting the 22 episodes worth of money paid out in 10 paychecks. You're getting 10 episodes worth yeah. of money paid so you just, out. So, so, you're you, not so you getting... just got docked 60% of your pay for the year, but yeah. you still, but you still, if you want to be part of the show, you got to stay on and, and take the pay cut because that's just kind of, because that's the the episode order they got, which is a weird thing that doesn't pr- probably happen in any other business. But that's just so you know that's one of the that's one of the things that's kind of undercutting that that's that's underlying the strike is that that people aren't being practical and and reasonable about stuff like they're not meeting halfway and 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 figuring out compromises. They're just you know they're standing fast. And that's and that's a shame. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's extremely, um, it's extremely um, important. In, uh, <laughs> okay. Go ahead. 
okay. Go ahead. Oh, All right. Okay. Well, um, just, just. Oh my God. <laughs> All right. Well, just trying to end the show. So uh, I definitely think that the writer's strike is something extremely unfortunate, but uh, we will get past that. Speaking about writers, I definitely wanted to thank Eric and Julia for coming on tonight, guys. Uh, thank you so much, and we'll definitely want to have you back again in the future. Oh, we'd love that. And uh, if we're going to um, wrap this up, if I might just ask anyone listening, uh, we are on Twitter at XMenTAS, which is for the animated series. And we have a blog website, um, uh, xmentas.com. And we'd love to have more people find us and and you know, get everyone excited and hopefully get ready to get the book out there and let yeah. folks see it that start, way. Start meeting you guys at cons as we go around uh, oh, yeah, the book. Absolutely. Right. And uh, what was the name of that book again? <laughs> well, actually, the current title Get, uh, oh, get this. oh, this is a drum roll. You're, yeah, getting, cause, you're getting an exclusive. Because yeah. you're the first one yeah. publicly yeah. heard it. Okay, so it was going to be it was going to be it was going to be X like X Men TAS or X Men the animated series the oh, make, the, the making, making of, of which is kind of bland. We thought, but we thought a better name for it would be previously on X Men. Oh, 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 wow! Oh. I, I like perfect. that response. I, I like perfect. that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes so much sense. Wow. Well, Geek Vibration, you heard it here first. We just decided that this week. So, yeah, all right. You're the first ones we're sharing that with. So, so, yeah. Thank you. You guys guys have surpassed any guests that we've had in the past. That's all I have to say. You guys have been great. And I can't wait to purchase that book. And join us. And I also want to say good night for all of my amazing co-hosts with Jawan, Joelle, Gerald, Kanan, and of course it was Caitlin's first week, and she did a damn good job. Everyone, give it up for Caitlin. Yay! Thank you guys. I I had a blast. Thank you. Well, I think we all had a blast. I can definitely say for myself that it was a lot of fun talking to two creators of a childhood product that I watched when I was a kid. And uh, I'm still thinking that we need to get Cal Todd and Kevin Conroy to do a swing album. Maybe they can call it oh. Dice or something like that. Uh, you know, just some classic swing. I think it would be perfect between the two. Or, or oh, get by, them by the way, guys, hand- if you're looking for if you're looking for the Cal Dodd has a has a website and he sells his CD on it. It's CalDodd.com. That again. Will be, yeah. I have to check that out. I have to check out Wolverine singing swing. Oh, I love that Sinatra so. <laughs> I can't even fathom the concept of him, like you know, snapping and just getting up there with a nice like tuxedo and just just brilliant. Yeah. Really, you, great episode. Really though. good. He's really really good, which is, just shows what a great performer he is. So. Well, Cal Dodd, you Absolutely. have these these wonderful people uh, talking about that from you. So you got to come on our show and talk about some swing. I think that'd be very important. Right. Everyone <laughs> out there, the Geek Vibes Nation. I appreciate you guys listening to us every single week. Uh, we are here from 8 to 10 on Saturdays. We also have shows throughout the whole entire week. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful night. Go Geek Fox. Bye. Bye.